Amen. Aren't you glad for that song? And uh, that's a new one to me, but that's a great message, a song. Go with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 2. And we are praying that we finish well, and God knows what He's doing. Acts chapter number 2, and I, I'm going to continue in this series uh, that I feel like the Lord has led us to, and that is this thought, that the church is still the answer. Uh, you say, what do you mean by that, Brother Mark? I mean, well, we're saying, well, the world's crazy, the world's crazy, the world's crazy. What's the answer? Well, I'll remind you, the church is still the answer. And Acts, the early part of Acts, the, uh, the world was crazy and the church was the answer. And I'm excited. Uh, I'm going to read one verse and you're going to think you're going to preach on that in a Baptist church, but the answer to that is yes. Acts chapter number 2 and verse number 1. And you find this, and the Bible says this, and the day of Pentecost was fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place. And for a little while, uh, I'm going to preach on this subject, the day of Pentecost. <laughs> you say, Brother Mark, we're not charismatic. Uh, we're not Pentecostal. Uh, we don't believe in the, uh, some of the things that they believe in. That's not the point. But I, I want you to just take note on the day of Pentecost. Now, i got some good news for you. I'll go ahead and tell you. This is a two-part sermon because it got a little long, so I couldn't do the whole, all of it today. So some of you say, well, thank the Lord for that. And so I'm really just going to preach the first point of this sermon. And some of you say, well, that's good. So I, I want you to get, not get a little nervous because the chapter 2 in the book of Acts is a long chapter. And we're not going to get through 47 verses. We're just really going to deal with this first verse. Now, I'll set the scene for you. For those of you that may have missed, we, we celebrated Easter Sunday, the resurrection of the Lord. We say, man, that's wonderful. And then we came back last week and preached in Acts chapter number one. And with, with this thought, this same Jesus, which is taken up for you, shall so come in like manner. And so we understood that we, the resurrected Lord, and the Bible said this, that he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. And we're thankful that we serve a resurrected Lord. So if you get to the end of this story, you, you, a lot of times we go straight to Acts chapter number two and, and we see an amazing thing happen. And at the end of Acts chapter Chapter number two, you find that 3,000 were saved and baptized on the same day. You say, man, what a meeting. And I say, man, what a meeting. Can you imagine that? And we'll look at the preaching and the power and all those things. But I want you to think with me for this morning, just this first point, on the preparation of the day of Pentecost. See, when you go back and you look and think, well, how did we get here? How, what in the world happened? It reminds us of this thought that God is always working. God is always working, oftentimes behind the scenes, oftentimes long before we ever dream it or ever think it. You find here this little expression, the day of Pentecost, when it was fully come, and we'll understand it in just a moment this way. But I want to remind you of a couple of things, and I don't want you to get lost with me because you can go into great detail in this because it's one of the Old Testament, one of the Old Testament feasts, the Jewish feast. So in the day of Pentecost, now, when you leave here today, you're going, Lord willing, to remember that one expression, the day of Pentecost, and when you read it, you're going to think, man, what an amazing God. You say, that's not real exciting, preacher. We read verse number one, the day of Pentecost was full of come. They were all in one accord in one place praying. That's good. But I want you to notice in background, the preparation, notice this, in preparation of the feast. 
Now we won't take the time there, but you go back to Leviticus and you find in Leviticus chapter number 23, you find an order of these, of these, uh, of these feasts that were happening. And every one of these feasts pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. The Passover was a picture of the death as the Lamb of God and we'll remind ourselves that as they were in bondage and the lamb, the sacrificial lamb was applied, the blood was applied to the door and they went out and, and then there was this ceremonial sacrifice on the Passover that the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb was sacrificed and sin was stayed another year. So when you get to Leviticus chapter 23, you say, I just muddy through that in my Bible reading. Sometimes I skip it. But if you go back in time and realize that the, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth as the Lamb of God, but long before he came, God instituted this order of the Passover, of the sacrifice. Then you get to the, in Leviticus chapter 23, you read about the, the first fruits, the feast of the first fruits. And we read about this principle of those wave offerings, of those sacrificial wave offerings, and they picture the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Passover, we have the sacrifice of the Lord. In the first fruits, we have the resurrection of the Lord. You say, why is that so exciting? Hold your place here and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, and I'll show you why. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 you said we read that last week and that's a good place to preach on Easter. But 1 Corinthians 15 is a good place to live every day. If there be no resurrection, then what's the point? You read the gospel, we talked about that, by which we're saved, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. And, and we talked about those in many infallible proofs and how it was seen above 500 brethren at once. But go with me in verse number 18, verse number 19, verse number 18. Then they also which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. So if there be no resurrection, if the Lord Jesus Christ was not truly bodily raised from the dead, then those which sleep are absolutely perished and there's nothing they can do. The Bible says in verse number 19, please don't miss it. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. You want me to tell you, show you a miserable person? A person has all this world can give them. You say, no, the people that are miserable are the ones that don't have anything. No, the people that are miserable has everything this world can give them and they realize there's only emptiness there. It says in verse number 20, he says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and notice this, and become the first fruits of them that sleep. You say, what does that mean? That means that's the first pickings. You like to, how many of you raise garden and your corn? How many of you know what we mean by the first corn? You want the first pickings? You understand that? How many of you understand that Southern expression? You want the first pickings because you don't want the ones eat up with bugs that's going to grow later, right? You want the best of the best. And we call that, here's the picture of that in the first fruits. You may pick beans and, and you know the first time and, and you talk about all those first fruits. Well, here's the point. If you read on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, it says this, for since by man came death, 
By man also came the resurrection then. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. You say, what does it mean? It means real simple. Because Christ has been risen from the dead, he is the firstfruits. That Levitical offering was just a picture of the resurrection. And if there are firstfruits, that means there are many more to follow. That means as we go by our graveside of those who put their faith and trust in Christ, we know that that is not the end. We know that the funeral home, the cemetery is not the end of their life. That if they've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and believed in the resurrected Lord, look, he will bring them with him. He, we are, he's just the first fruit and there's many that be the follow. You say, man, that's exciting. But if you read in all of Leviticus chapter 23, you come to another feast. That's his feast of Pentecost. It's a feast of Pentecost and, and it's 50 days. Go back with me, Acts chapter number two. It's 50 days after this first fruits. And so here they have it seven weeks on the Sabbath and 49 plus one. And you can go back for those, you Bible scholars, you can go back and read it and figure it all out yourself. And many Bible scholars believe that this, this happens to fall always on the first day of the week that these feasts end up falling right on the first day of the week. So it just happened to be Sunday when Pentecost came. It just happened to be Sunday when resurrection came. And you think about Sunday, you think about the beautiful picture of it. So here they find the Pentecost. You say, what is Pentecost? Pentecost pictures the, the formation of the church, the empowering of the church. We believe the church was founded with Christ and his disciples, but it was empowered on this day of Pentecost. And so here's what I want you to get. You say, well, Brother Mark, you've bored me with some Old Testament history and Old Testament fruits and offerings and feasts. And you say, well, we don't live under the Old Testament. But here's what I want you to understand. I want you to look at me and get this. When I drive down the road and I look at the road signs, I know somebody, before I got there, put them there. And they're directing me. Oh, it may say yield ahead. It may say you're going to merge. It may say lane ends. And somebody that knew where that road went before I got there put them signs up for me. And when I read that day of Pentecost is fully come, you say, that's just a historical account. No, it tells me, please don't miss it. And before time and before eternity, the God of the universe says, now let me explain to you that I've got a work that is going on. I've got something that is going to happen. And when he set up that tabernacle and he set up those Levitical offerings, he said, by the way, put something in there about the Passover lamb and the sacrifice that's going to be made. You say, well, that's just because we can kill animals. No, it's not about killing animals. It's about pointing to the sacrifice, the, the lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world and then he goes on and he says talk about the first fruits that he's going to be raised from the dead and then talk about Pentecost and that feast of celebration because the church is going to be empowered by the spirit of God and when I read on the fact that the day of Pentecost is fully come I recognize this about my God he sets things in motion before we ever dream of it you see the motion, you see it in the sacrifice, or you see it in the, in, the, in the feast, you see the preparation in the people. Go down in verse number, uh, verse number five, I think it is, in chapter number two. It says, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And if you want to take the time this afternoon to get Alexander Scorby to read verses nine and 10 to you, and list all the nations that were there. And he can pronounce them properly for you. 
you'll find that every believing Jew was there for this feast of this tabernacle. No, don't miss this. I mean, this uh, feast of Pentecost. And you think, what in the world is, is this about? The devout ones, those that believed the Messiah was coming. Those that were looking for and anticipating the Messiah that was coming, the, the anointed one. And they look, please don't miss this. And I don't use this vernacular to be disrespectful, but please don't miss it. They just happened to be there when God was about to pour out his spirit on those early New Testament disciples. And they were about to enjoy the, the feeling and the control and then dwelling of the spirit of God. And God began to work to get things in order to not only set up the feast that would happen hundreds of years before, but now they were there in Jerusalem. Look, on the very day that the children of God that were meeting in that upper room were praying and waiting on the spirit of God. And so you see, look, you look at back and you see a big God that has started something in motion over here and started something in motion under here and at that moment they had no idea what was about to happen but God was working and I'll say this to you there's times we have no idea what God is doing you say man what in the world are we going to do now you say why this and why now and what's going on but look now I read that expression it says the day of Pentecost was full of come let me say this God knew about the day of Pentecost before they did and he knew as we'd say in East Tennessee dialect he knew it was about to get gooder and gooder <laughs> but they were struggling not sure what to do next but let me say this to you. God was not just preparing in the feast of the Old Testament and the pictures they are for the Lord Jesus Christ and his, his, his sacrifice and bodily resurrection. God was not just preparing in the nations that the devout Jews from every nation was gathered there. But let me say this to you, and this is really where I'd like to do, but God was preparing in the people that he was going to use. How did we get there? How did we get to Acts chapter number two? Back up and look at Acts chapter number one. Acts chapter number one. Let me say this to you. God sets things in motion and he sees the full bloom when we don't. We've sung a lot this morning about God's timing. God leads us along, sheltered in the arms of God. Uh, we sing that beautiful song and then we sung a little faster one about uh, God's right on time and he's never late. And, and you think, man, it's a dark days. It, it's a difficult time. What in the world are we to do? But you find that God begins to prepare his people. You go back to Acts chapter number one and I preached last week on this same Jesus, verse 11. He says, so come in like manner as you've seen him go. So they were working and they were watching and they were waiting. So the Bible says in verse number 12 that they returned unto Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So it was Sabbath day and there was only so many cubics they could walk and, and it was there, so they were not breaking the law. And so they were going in the Sabbath day's journey and they're going to the upper room. They tell us probably the same room that the last Passover meal was taken and, and the Lord Jesus Christ institutes the Lord's Supper. It says, and when they were come in, they were up in the upper room where abode, with, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes and Judas, the brother of James. And these all continued 
with one accord and prayer and supplication with the women. And the mother of Jesus was with the brethren. Now I want you to notice something. They've seen the resurrected Lord. They've watched him go. He told them to go wait for the empowerment of the Spirit of God. I don't know what's going through their mind, but I do know this. They don't know what's coming next. <laughs> they don't know that in a 10 days, 3,000 people's gonna be saved and baptized. They don't have any idea. They don't know in the coming weeks that multitudes will follow and the church will be multiplied and the church will be added unto daily as such as should be saved. They have no idea. What they do know is everything they knew was gone. And so what they do? They obeyed God and took the next step. I don't know that upper room, but Acts chapter number two and verse number one says this, they were in one accord. Notice it. Acts chapter number two and verse one, it says this, they were all with one accord in one place. And chapter number two, verse one, and then verse number 14 of chapter one says this, they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Six times in the book of Acts, you find this, that they, the Bible uses this term, they were in one accord. And of course, the joke is always made. Well, I don't know how they all fit in one car. If you've ever been in a cord, not many of you will fit in there. But it has to do with they were together in spirit and in purpose. You say, what were they doing? Well, it's very simple. They were obeying God and waiting on God and they knew not the answer. As you think about that upper room, they tell us later in that chapter, and I think I read it to you on down in verse 14 or 15, it tells us there were 120 disciples there. Now that was not all the believers at that time because he was seen of over 500 of his brethren, and, and I know that, but those that were still there in, in the upper room, and you find in the upper room, look, listen to me, you'll find different types of people there. You find men and women there. You find apostles there and you find ordinary folk there. You find the Lord's own earthly family was there. Mary and many of his brethren that at one part did not believe that others just said this is the carpenter's son and, and there was all kinds of things. But you find them there in the upper room. But you know what you don't find there? You don't find divisions and jealousies. Bible says they were of one accord. You say, what kind of division and jealousy could have been? Now look, if, we, if it was alive and church, if it was church today, we would just say, well, here's Mary and the brethren that maybe they suppose they should have some seed of prevalence, but no, what they were, listen, please don't miss this. What they were doing is they were worshiping and serving the risen Savior. They'd seen him go. And so Mary and the brethren, they did not have an elevated position. Oh, if I was the apostle John, I'd have been talking to him about how hard I had it. Where were you boys when he said, behold, my, the, my, thy mother? I was there at the cross and you cowards forsook him. But you see, John kept his mouth shut. Oh, and then Peter's gonna get up and say, it's time to select another disciple. <laughs> It's time for us to move forward and, and they cast lots and, and they prayed about what they were to do and, and you find this. And if it was church today, we just said, Shut, sit down, Peter. We heard what you did last month. 
Now, you wonder why we don't have Pentecost power and why we don't have multitudes saved. It's because we don't have brethren united in prayer. Oh, we'll never reproduce Pentecost. It was a one-time event, though it was a feast of the Old Testament. What happened on the day of Pentecost was a one-time event. I'm not looking for that experience, but what I am doing is I'm longing for that power. So here they are at the end of their rope. They don't know what's happening next. All they know is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they have loved, whom they had followed, is now gone away. He said, I'll, I'll leave you comfortless. I'll send another comforter. Now go and wait in Jerusalem. So here they are in the upper room and they could have been great divisions but the Bible said this over and over and over again they were in one accord in one place you say man well, that'd be good I'd like to get the church all together in one place <laughs> but you find they weren't just in one place they were in one spirit you see the center of their fellowship was the risen savior I know we could have said you say, well, Peter took up in his rightful place, but I'll remind you that in Luke's gospel record in Luke 22, that the Lord Jesus Christ said to him, strengthen the brethren when thou art converted. He said, Satan has desired that he may sift thee as sweet, but when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. And John, he goes to him in a personal account. We know the story in John chapter 21. We know the story. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And he tells the apostle Peter that you still have a work to do. So you say, what's so exciting to you about the fall of them gathered in, in the upper room, them gathered in one accord? I, I still see the apostle Peter and though he has failed, he has repented and he wept bitterly and he's cried out to God and he's made it right with God and then God is continuing to use him. If you look in Acts chapter number 14, you believe in the inspiration of the Spirit of God, right? The Bible? And notice in verse number 13 it says, and they went in the upper room where abode notice this, Peter. Peter's name is listed first. Now if I was the Spirit of God, I'm not sure I'd put him on my list now, don't look so shocked you wouldn't either. If you heard he was denying the Lord and cussing 40 days before, you wouldn't put him on your list either. And God forgives him. And not only did he say, oh, go tell my disciples and Peter, he's got him in that upper room. And Peter's about to stand up and say, we got a situation to take care of. You say, what's happening? Look, let me say this to you. God is doing a work in the people that he's going to use. Peter learned something in his denial. He learned he wasn't as tough as he thought he was. Peter learned he wasn't as strong as he thought he was. That's why the Lord says when you're converted, strengthen the burden. He says you're sifted as wheat, but when God strengthens you, now use the strength that God has given you to strengthen those that are around you. So you find who was there, men and women and the apostles, ordinary people, uh, the Lord family. You find a collection there. And you say, what was so important? It was a time for praying together and standing together in the Lord. Why? Let me say this to you. God knew what they were about to face. Many of us have read this book, the book of Acts, and we know the persecution that's about to come, the stonings are coming, the imprisonment's coming. We know all of that's coming. But for 10 days, God locked them up in the upper room and they had a 10-day prayer meeting. 
And as they worshiped and as they prayed, God began to work. Not only you see who was there, but notice that lastly you see what they did. It tells us what they did in verse 14. And they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. With women, Mary, with the women and Mary, the mother of James and his brethren. You say, what's happened? It says real simple. They said, well, they don't know what to do. Say, well, what do they do? Well, it's real simple. You pray. You pray when you don't know what to do. They don't know what's next. They're about to make a decision in the disciples and you can discuss whether you think the apostle Paul was the 12th disciple and they shouldn't have or not, but many Bible scholars believe because the day of Pentecost was about to come that they needed that 12th disciple because they were gonna testify to the 12 tribes and you can get into all that if you want to. But my point is this, they did not know what to do. They gathered in a room. The Bible doesn't talk about what they discussed. The Bible doesn't talk about any problems and any infightings. This was not a time when James and John said who's going to be the greatest because they had just watched their leader be crucified. This was a time when all they could do was get on their face before God and pray. And the world is as desperate and as dark as it's ever been. You say, what do we need to do? What's next? How do we serve in this generation? And well, the, the, the problems that we're dealing with and, and the technology that we deal with and the drug problems that we deal with and the socialist problems that we deal with. You say, what do we do? We must learn to pray and seek an answer from God and a power from God. You say, the world's falling apart. The world wasn't in great shape then. And you find for 10 days, if you study out that 50th day, the word Pentecost means 50th and 50 days later, and the Lord Jesus Christ was on this earth for 40 days, so 10 days, they prayed. I don't know everything they prayed, but I know if you read the book of Acts, by the way, they continued to pray. If you look in verse 24, before they made the decision about the disciples, it says, and they prayed. It said, Lord, show us what to do. You read on in Acts chapter four, they prayed for courage to witness. Acts chapter number two, it says they prayed daily in the temple and they, they continued on. They prayed for power. When their, when their believers were in prison, they prayed. It was at prayer meetings that the hearts were softened and lives were changed and they went forward by prayer. And I wanna say this to you, some of us need to keep our mouth shut about what it, we need to do next until we get along with God and begin to pray. You can't have the answer for what comes next because you don't know what comes next till you talk to the one that does know what's coming next. You say, man, life was over. As they knew it, it was. Man, I wish we could just, look, I wish for just a moment we could go to that upper room and freeze time. Now, look, we go to that upper room right now and we say, well, well yeah, I can tell you, it turns out pretty good. But at that moment, they didn't know how it was going to turn out. At that moment, they didn't know if they was going to walk out and ever want them to be crucified next. At that moment, they didn't know if the Roman guards were going to show up. At that moment, they thought life was over. They had no idea what to do. And the Bible says they continued in one accord with prayer and supplication. Supplication means making requests. <laughs> 
Supplications means, Lord, I, I need help. You find some things about this prayer became a pattern in their life. But let me say this to you. They prayed for direction. And I close. They prayed for direction. They didn't know what was next. God, tell us who the 12th disciple is going to be. God, tell us when we can leave this room. God, show us what is next. Let me say this to you. But they prayed out of desperation. Life as they knew it was over. They didn't know what it meant to be led by the Spirit of God. They hadn't experienced that yet. Later, later in this chapter, they'll experience, I mean, later in this book, they'll experience, but that moment, look, they didn't know what was next. It was a prayer of desperation. But let me say this to you. It was also a prayer of duty. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? It means God told them to go wait. They were simply obeying God. You say, what does the world need today? Well, I'll tell you what I think the world needs today. They need a group of people that believe God that are worshiping the resurrected Lord. Look, that are talking to him for one purpose. When you think about prayer in a church, Warren Wearsby said this about prayer in a church. He said, prayer is both the thermometer and the thermostat of a local church. For the spiritual temperature either goes up or down depending on how God's people pray. You say, I, I, I just tell you this, we can spend a long time complaining about different things in life, but we need to spend some time on our face before God. I close with this statement, that is this. Those early New Testament church believers realized this, they couldn't live without each other. And they couldn't live without the power of God. Oh, they didn't have the Lord Jesus Christ with them. He said, wait till you be endued with power. They're waiting. And what I have happened in the world today is people, people, when they need the church the most, they withdraw the furthest. They go through hurt. They go through heartache. They go through disappointment. Life as they know is over. They're in the middle of despair. And they need a group of believers more in their time and that time than any other time. And what Satan will do is say, get away from here. Imagine if Apostle Peter had listened to Satan. The Lord wouldn't have used him like he did. You think those thoughts didn't go through Peter's mind when he stood up and he said, well, now we got to do something. You sure Satan didn't say, who are you? And what are you doing here? By the way, Satan will tell you that every week, every time the doors are open. Who are you and what are you doing here? And if, if they knew you like I know you, and then you say, what do we need? We need a group of believers that we can band together with and pray and say, God, we need it in desperation. Times are desperate. Vance Havner was quoted with saying that times are desperate, but the saints are not. You say, what do we need? We, we need God's power. And I'm afraid too many times that we've learned to live without the one another's and without the power of God. And we wonder why life gets harder. Now, look, I'm not telling you if you come to church three times a week and, and you tithe your income that you're going to have a bed of roses and never any thorns because I'd be lying to you. Some of the ones in this very room were martyred for their faith, but they experienced the joy of knowing God and seeing God work unlike anything we've ever seen. 
in a few chapters. <laughs> Peter and John are going to say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. Take up thy bed and walk. And they're going to watch a lame man get up. But in the upper room, they didn't know what was happening. All they could do is band together. Say, God, we got to have you. We don't know what's next. So when I read that little expression, the day of Pentecost, I look back to an all-wise God and the eons of time before and said, let me start some things in motion. Oh, they ain't going to see the full bloom. They ain't going to see that bloom in the tabernacle. They ain't going to see the full bloom in the temple. But let me start some things in motion. And when it blooms, we say, wow, look what God did. You say, what are you doing in the meantime? Sometimes you've got to lock up in your proverbial upper room with a group of believers and say, God, you've got to help me. I don't know what is next. You say, boy, I'd like to walk in that upper room and told them what's next. I wouldn't because I wouldn't want them to miss depending upon God. And some of you have been through it. Some of you, I'm looking at, you've been through what we call dark waters and dark days. And you say, I didn't know what to do. And you can say, God met you in the upper room. So what do we do? We get alone with God. We pray. We get together with others. And we band together to pray. We don't find reason to criticize John or Peter or Mary or one of the brethren. We don't say you had your chance. That's what some would have said to Jesus' brother. You had your chance. You didn't believe on him when he was living with you. But when they showed up to pray, they said, come on in, let's pray. Because look, at some point, all eyes have to get on the resurrected Savior. You say, my life is hard. My life is difficult. Look, we serve a risen Savior. This world has no power on him, has no dominion on him. Death has nothing they can do. Sickness has nothing it can take from him because he's the first fruits of the resurrection. You say, what happens if I die in my time of disappointment? What happens if I die? Look, then, then Christ will bring us with him. For the child of God, worshiping the risen Savior is the life that we must have now. I want you to bow with me in prayer. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, how many of you say, I have had moments of